Shall we commence? All right, we're in chapter 5. We're going to jump in somewhere around uh, verse, I don't know, 3 maybe. And we'll um, um, give a quick overview of the first two uh, two verses so that we have a running start and a context. Uh, again, we're uh, one of the things that I was noticing this this week. I was actually noticing two things this week. Um, the reason that you find so many weird uh, or, or let me just say not weird odd interpretations of Revelation is because people don't identify the various components of Revelation and the depictions or the pictures or the symbols uh, in a, pr- a particular right order. And so I was noticing, I was reading a uh, book, and I won't say the author's name, uh, that I grew up with that is considered within the denomination that I grew up with uh, in as a foremost scholar with regards to Revelation. And I was reading about the four horsemen because I'm already ahead uh, a chapter studying for the next chapter. Um, And I was reading about the four horsemen and the, the way that they understand the four horsemen is directly related to the fact that they do not understand the scroll in the hand of the right hand of him who sits on the throne correctly. And because they don't interpret the scroll correctly, they're a- able to add what I call symbolic license to the interpretation of the four horsemen, and they're able to project it off into a specific time into the future. So it's very, very important that we understand that what these symbols represent and why they represent what they do uh, correctly. Otherwise, we're, it opens the door to misconceptions and further misinterpretations. Uh, and I know that it, uh, it's, um, it can be somewhat tedious, but at the same time, if it's not, we just have this general understanding of stuff and some of it's right and some of it's wrong and that's not necessarily good. <laughs> so last week, let me just say this. Last week there was a little bit of a discussion concerning time the, the uh, discrepancy between the concepts of time and chronology when we're talking about eternal things. And we talked about the eternality of God. When, G- when uh, Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, he's making a definitive statement. And he's, sa- he's saying something in present tense. He's saying he's eternal. And so what he's saying is, is that his eternality spans the, the, what we call the time in creation. And so that gives us a clue a little bit as to w- what God is. And the, the, the trick of understanding Revelation is that chapter 4 demonstrates something to us that we need to keep in mind. Remember what we have is we have the picture of God's throne, right? We have the four living beings around the throne, they represent what? Four faces. They they represent all of God's created order. Man, lion, ox, and eagle. So because there are four, four winds, four corners of the earth, represents the entirety or the fullness of creation. So you have God's throne in the center with the, the, the seven... Spirits of God before it, the four living creatures around the four living creatures 
are the, the 24 elders. Now, it's very important that we understand that when the Bible speaks of angels, it says what? Angels. These are not called angels. And so when you read commentaries that says these are angelic beings, I have a disagreement with that because they represent the church. And no angel is said to be the recipient of Christ's righteousness or wear a crown or sit with him on a throne. So to have a picture of an angel sitting with Christ on a throne is an erroneous picture. That promise is given only to who? The elect. So that picture around God's throne on the 24, uh, the, the 24 elders around God's throne is a picture of the church, universal, Old Testament, New Testament combined. 12, 12, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 24, which we get from uh, chapter, I believe it's 21, where the New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it's got as its foundations, the, I think it's the 12 apostles and as the gates of the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, okay? Then uh, around that, we have what's called the heavens, right? And that's the created heavens. So Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then over the head of, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting away from it. The, the peals of thunder and all that's important, but not for this particular statement. And then overarching all of this and surrounding the, the, the picture is a picture of the rainbow. Now let me say this, the picture of the rainbow is not a depiction of the covenant made with Noah. The covenant made with Noah is a depiction of what already is in heaven. So we don't want to get that backwards. God didn't give Noah a rainbow and go, oh, that's a cool idea, I'll put one in heaven. No, he's, it's, it's, the rainbow symbolizes something and it's the idea of the rainbow in, Genesis, uh, in Revelation chapter four is the symbol of the new creation. So what you have is you have a picture of creation, the created order in a whole. The heavens, the new creation, the 24 elders, later in chapter 5, we see the myriads and myriads of angels that surround the, the throne. So all of the angelic hosts, the church, the created order, all sovereignly ruled by God, right? So that's the picture. Now what that means is, is that that whole picture is what? In time. That's an important statement to make. Because at, from that point on, everything that we talk about within the context of Scripture, or within the context of Revelation, symbology has a time stamp. Now when I say they're not chronological, this is what I mean. When you get to, and I'm going to shoot, I'm going to um, steal some of my thunder from next week, but when you get to the four horsemen, that's chapter 6, Right? But the effects of the release of the four horsemen actually are seen where? Already. Where are they seen? Chapters 2 and 3. That's what I mean by non-chronology. What is released in chapter 6, the four horsemen, is already evident in the depiction of what's going on in the churches in chapters 2 and 3. So if you read the book chronologically, you will think, that the churches are going through something and then the four horsemen are released going forward. That's a wrong concept. That's what I mean by you can't apply a chronological read to Revelation. 
What I also mean is, is that when there is a depiction or a picture made, there is a definite time stamp to it because it happens within this sphere, which is creation. Creation functions by time. When God steps into creation, He also functions with us by time. And we know that because Paul said, at just the right time, Christ came. Okay, so I, what I don't want to give you guys this idea of is that there's no there's no time stamp on anything. There was a little bit of a problem with that last week. You're saying chronology, but then you're saying that the picture of Jesus is actually his incarnation. Yes, because the incarnation is a time stamp. It is an actual event in history, and that's what chapter five is a picture of. And it has a definite time stamp in the history of the church age. But the chronology of Jesus, of Jesus being depicted in chapter 5 precedes Revelation 1. And you have to read Revelation 1 understanding that the incarnation and the work of Christ has already been done. But that picture is not given to us until, until chapter 5. Does that make sense to you guys? So you can't read Revelation in a, chrono a chronological order. That's what I mean about being careful with how you read Revelation because these things go backward and forward. And if you try to read it in a linear form, it'll mess you up. Okay? So I just wanted to say that. Now we're in chapter 5, and we've already talked about chapter 4. Chapter 4 shows the triune God, ineffable undescribable, John doesn't try to describe him, makes no reference to his name, ruling sovereignly over all of creation. And then John sees, as it were, a scroll in the right hand of the one that he will not describe. Now the right hand is not an actual hand of the being. The right hand, like the throne, is a symbolic picture. And what the right hand symbolizes is uh, omnipotence, all power. Right hand in, in uh, ancient and antiquity always represents the king's authority. So whoever was sitting at the right hand of the king on the throne was his regent, was the one who exercised the will of the one who sat on the throne. Okay, So that's what right hand means. It doesn't mean that somebody was sitting on his hand or anything like that. It just simply represents omnip omnipotence. All right? Um, verse 2, and I saw my... Okay, so we're going to pick it up in verse 2, uh, which is about as far as we got last week. <laughs> and I'm going to read through this rather rapidly because I want to get to the apocalypse and... And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So you have this picture... Like I said, Jesus' right hand. And then all of a sudden, John's there. And then from maybe a side passage or whatever, or materializing or out, just out of his sight, he realizes there is a what the Bible describes as a mighty angel making a proclamation. And he is saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? This angelic spokesman uh, is like the angel of Daniel 4 and functions in the role of the divine spokesman for the heavenly council. He is depicted as mighty. 
Um, this is a reoccurring theme in the apocalypse. It's the same angel later in chapter 10 that actually gives the same scroll to John to eat. Okay? Um, most commentators suggest that this description is important because his voice must be heard throughout all of creation and that the proclamation is repetitive in nature. So because of the Greek context here, what, what the picture is is that an angel is standing proclaiming over and again, who is worthy, who is worthy. And his voice is heard within this sphere. Remember also in this sphere is the sea of glass. And what does that represent? The subdued enemy of God. Okay? The sea, there will be no more sea. Revelation chapter 20. Okay, right? We all covered all that. So, so the angel is actually proclaiming who in the heavens, who among the church, who among all creation, and who below the earth and of the enemies of God is worthy to open the scroll. Okay? So this proclamation goes out to the entire created order. He is acting on behalf of the Lamb of God and, and the heavenly council. Uh, who is worthy to break the scroll? This word worthy here means the qualifications for the purpose of fulfilling a task. Thus the angel is asking, who is qualified, deserving by right, and authorized by the scroll's author to break the seals? And several commentators make this note, and I think it's an actually it's an important thing to, to, to make a note of. He makes his proclamation several times and then he waits based on some, some of the context of, of, of the way that the, the, the grammatical context. Then the angel is silent and there is a silence in heaven. There is a silence in all of creation. It means that any effort of man, angel or demon, is insufficient to initiate the execution of the, the divine plan of redemption. Man cannot save himself. No angel can enact the sovereign plan of redemption. There is nothing in all of creation that can open the scroll, that is worthy to open the scroll. Uh, the scroll itself. Now, what is the scroll? Anybody... Have an idea? Where does the scroll appear in other places? There's a place where it says, "And John wept bitterly because no one was found in heaven to no one was found to open the scroll." Why would John weep? I mean, okay, where's the mic? So it is the plan of redemption, as as Josh just said. It is indeed the plan of redemption. But John knows what this scroll is. John knows what this scroll is. And because he does, he weeps. All right. In Daniel, God tells Daniel to seal up the scroll until the time of the end. And this is that scroll. 
And John knows this. John, because he is a good Jewish man, knows Daniel's prophecy. And that prophecy was a sealing up until the end and there was a Jewish hope assigned to that scroll. And so when no one was able to open what God told Daniel to seal up, John weeps bitterly. The hope of Israel may not come to fruition because there is no one to do this. Now tied to that is a whole lot of messianic uh, uh, prophetic statements. The king will rule over and subdue the nations and bring the nation of Israel to its rightful place as, as overling of all of the other nations. And so John still clings to these hopes. So this idea that no one can open the scroll is a bitter pill for, for John to, to accept, okay? Um, the scripture makes clear that, the, okay, so it says, uh, Daniel was instructed by the angel uh, of like description, which is important, probably the same one, to seal up the book recording the judgments given to him until the end of time the end, uh, or, or the latter days. As the scripture makes clear, the latter days have been inaugurated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. It is then to be expected that Daniel's book was unsealed by Christ. That's what the picture is here. It is important to understand that Daniel 7 and 12 are the only places in the Old Testament where the sealing... Uh, and, uh, and the latter-day unsealing of a book are mentioned. So here John is clearly witnessing the fulfillment of Daniel's 500-year-old prophecy. All right? There are several interpretations of what this scroll is, and this is where it gets really important to understand. Some suggest it to be the Lamb's Book of Life. You will hear that. Others have suggested it is the entire Old Testament. Okay, and then still others uh, hold that this is the book contains the ret uh, ret retributive events, retribu I don't know how to say that, events of a yet future tribulation that leads up to the second coming but follows the rapture of the church. In other words, there are those that believe that the scroll, dispensationalists, are the events of what happens in the seven-year tribulation. Okay. Okay, so that's a common thought. A lot of people think that we've just been in this, what's called a parenthetical uh, a place in church history where really nothing goes on except for God is just gathering the Gentiles in. But all the fun stuff happens once we get yanked out. Okay? And that Jesus actually appears here in the throne, His appearance here and His receiving of the throne and opening it of the receiving of the scroll and opening it is the initiation of the seven-year tribulation. However, as we will see, and we go back to Daniel, the fact that Jesus receives the scroll is his uh, exaltation to the throne of God. It is his. Uh, it, it, it is him receiving the kingdom from his Father. It's his authority now to sit at the right hand of God, which happens at the moment when at his resurrection and ascension. Okay, so Jesus opens the scroll at his ascension, not after the Gentiles had been gathered and just before a seven-year tribulation. Okay? It is best to understand the scroll to contain God's plan of judgment and redemption 
which has been inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, and, uh, but is not yet consummated. G.B. Caird states that the scroll is God's redemptive plan foreshadowed in the Old Testament by which he means to assert his sovereignty over a sinful, a sinful world and so achieve the purposes of creation. That's a very cool statement. I made a mistake there. Let me fix that. All right. Hendrickson uh, also states that the scroll symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history and, concerns, uh, and concerning all creation in all ages and in all eternity. Uh, the redemptive plan initiated by the, the victory of Christ awaiting a further fulfillment in the victory of the conquerors which will contribute to the final victory of God. So uh, the scroll is the plan of God for redemption. And in that plan there are two factors involved. And this is where we miss a lot of things. What are the two factors involved in redemption? Okay, let's let's look, uh, let me let me narrow it down a little bit because that's true, but it's 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 not the context here that we're looking at. In this context, in the book of Revelation, what are the two aspects of redemption that we see? The let me just say it real quick: the the doing away of the old creation to make way for the new. So judgment and redemption. The two are the are, are different sides of the same coin. You can't have redemption without judgment. The new creation cannot come. Remember what Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground, and what? So the old creation must pass away. From which the new creation comes. So revelation, upon the opening of the scroll of redemption, there's a two-faceted if, there are two events that are going to be going on. What are they? And we see them throughout, the, the, for example, in the, in, the, in the seals. We see the four horsemen come out, and then what do we see? We see the redeemed. And in every series of judgments, we see the redeemed somewhere in, in there. Because the two are uh, uh, inseparably combined. God's plan of redemption requires the judgment upon fallen, the fallen world. Okay? So, we need to keep that in mind. The stuff that we see going on around us right now, all the heinous activity, all the stuff that's going on, God's judgment unto redemption. Remember, I will show you the things that what? Must be. So do you look around you and see the garbage that's going on in the world and say, this must be? Or do you look at it and go, oh my gosh, what's happening? Right? That's what we do. That's because we lose sight of what Revelation says. This is why this book is so important. What does Revelation say? I will show you the things that must happen. Must happen for what? Must happen unto what end? Redemption. What's going on in the world right now is God's plan of redemption. And when we remove it from that context, it becomes fearful to us. If we're able to keep it within the context of God's plan of redemption, remember, when we get to the four horses of the apocalypse, they are under God's sovereign control. How do they come about? 
They are called by a divine agent. And I saw the first scroll open and I heard the, the, one of the living beings say, come. So the judgment that is brought about throughout the rest of Revelation is initiated and sovereignly orchestrated by God unto His, His purposes, His inexorable purposes. So when we look out at the world and we see what's going on in the world, we get fearful because we lose the perspective of this is God's plan of redemption. Okay? So we got to keep that in mind. The stuff that you see going on in California right now, the stuff that you see going on in the world right now is all part of God's sovereign control and His redemptive plan. And it's hard to make that adjustment in our minds. But that's what Revelation tells us. Any questions yet? All right. Uh, the question the mighty angel asks, and we have already said this, um, but I'll say it again. Um, the question, who is able to open the scroll? Um, concerns who in the created order has the sovereign authority to execute God's eternal plan. We say this concerns authority within the created order for the following reasons. The heavens of chapter 4 is the heavens of Genesis 1 and is therefore a component of creation itself. The vision of chapter 4 as a whole depicts God presiding over in sovereign authority over all of creation. Jesus is here depicted in his, this is important. When Jesus arrives on the scene in chapter 5, is he, what, what does he appear as? A lamb. What is that indicative of? His incarnate, his incarnation, yes? It's a picture of God stepping into creation. Now, why if, if this is an interesting th thing, and I don't know that m many think of it, and I didn't really until I started giving a thought to, to this. The angel proclaims, who is able to open the scroll? Why didn't God just go, oh, that's me? That's right. It had to be a man. Hebrews clearly says that. Yeah. But that's important because God steps into the created order and becomes a part of it in order to redeem it. All right? That's important. This is why God didn't step up in a pre-incarnate state and say, I'll just open this real quick. Because a man had to pay the price as a part of creation to redeem creation. Hebrews clearly tells us that. Okay? So, when the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? No one in heaven or earth is able to. It's an important statement. Okay? Um, Jesus here is depicted in his incarnate form as the Lamb of God, the invisible God become visible as a man. Thus the eternal, invisible second person of the Trinity, uh, he who was not depicted apart from him who sat on the throne in chapter 4, became a man and entered into creation. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All right? Additionally, the promise to reign over the earth was given to who? Man. In the garden, Adam. What does Jesus, what role does Jesus assume in his incarnate state? The last Adam. So it is, what was given to Adam is now transferred to the second Adam. Okay? So that's why this picture is so cool. That's why this is an unbelievable picture. We see in creation God, ineffable, sitting, presiding over all of creation in an unredeemed state. And an angel steps up and said, who's there worthy to open the scroll? And John is, is crushed because of the hopes of Israel are dashed when no one steps up to open the scroll. Uh, Daniel's scroll will remain sealed forever until one like a lamb, slain, steps up. The incarnate God, the visible form of the invisible God steps up and says, I will open the scroll. And this goes all the way back to Daniel, where one like the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and received from him the scroll, received from him the, the authority, the kingdom. Okay, that's what this is the fulfillment of, all right? Um, let's see. Hebrews, and Rick just alluded to it, Hebrews 2.14 says, says this, just so you guys know. Since the children have flesh and blood, and two, uh, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Right? That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, and this is the key, he had to be made, made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. He had to become in all ways like his brothers. Yes, Bob. Uh, the way it helps me to understand that, that uh, Jesus had to be a, a man, is if you look at the way the sacrificial system was made up, they had, of course, remember, the, uh, uh, an innocent living thing had to give its life to pay the price for the sin uh, of the sinner. And the key is a living thing, which was innocent, had to die. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense to me that yeah. Jesus would have to come as a man in order to... Um, fulfill you know that whole process yeah there's an old yeah that's very true and that's you know there are ways that that help us the one that helps me is the simple phrase in the old testament when they were looking for the paschal lamb it said that you had to take one from among the herd that phrase right there tells me that it had to be in among his brothers as one so Jesus was taken from humanity as the lamb without blemish. Those are cool pictures. All right. Um, the lamb then is worthy to take the scroll and open the scroll because he is one with God and one with, with us. And his death as a man is therefore the means of redemption and divine life for his own. 
the scroll then represents authority in executing the eternal plan of judgment and redemption. Um, it's made clear by uh, several of the, the passages, 5, 9 through 10 and 5, 12. Um, and I'll buzz on down here so that we can get through the rest of this. Now, some people, the interesting thing is a lot of people don't try to give what was the scroll. Was it a scroll? Was it a codex? Was it a, a Roman will? Um, I think it was a scroll. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that this is one of those areas where if you're reading commentaries, you can get really bogged down in, in some of this. You know, uh, a lot, there's, a, there's a lot of tendency that says, you know, hey, maybe it was a Roman will because a Roman will was executed by seven witnesses who applied their seal to, to a will that betrothed something to, especially of a very high-ranking person. When they would fashion a will, they would bring in seven witnesses and each one of them would seal the scroll as it was rolled up. Um, so I, I, I don't really care about all that. It's, it's a, the scroll was written on the inside and the outside, meaning it was a complete plan. It was sealed by seven seals. And in order to read it, here's the catch. And this is why I say you can't really read the, the, the Revelation chronologically. The, the, the plan was not released in its entirety until what? All seven seals were broken. So the, the depiction going forward of a seal, seal being broken and one thing released and we kind of let it go and run its course, and then when it gets done, Jesus moves over and opens the second seal and then lets it run its course, is an erroneous picture. And it does damage to Scripture because it lends itself to the idea of a chronological order throughout the rest of Revelation. Jesus took the scroll, and the picture that I get is he put his finger in the end of it, and he went, and then opened the scroll. Yeah, Rick, yeah. microphone. <laughs> all, things are, all things are being worked out simultaneously in the plan of God. Yeah. He, he doesn't go, now this, now this, now this, now this, now mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Everything since, since the cross, in fact, prior to, has been the plan of God being worked out for man redemptively, mm -hmm. simultaneously. Yeah. We have to process it in, in our way of time. But in the heart of God, it's eternal. Yeah. It's an eternal plan. That's right. Yeah, and, and that's a really important thing. So when, you, when we get to chapter 6 and we start seeing that the, scroll, the, the release of the four horsemen, we understand that the four horsemen weren't, weren't released. First conquering went out, and after conquering got done, he rode off the stage, and then here comes war. Actually, the idea is that four of them appear at the same time. Because, in fact, the first horseman gives context for the state of the world in which the other three can actually function. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but you have to understand that when the seals are broken, chapters 6 through 18 or 19 are now inaugurated. They're initiated. We read it in linear form because that's the way our brains process but the four horsemen didn't show up, and then when they got done, then seven angels step up and start blowing trumpets. That's not the way that 
the plan of salvation works. What happens is, is when God opened the, when Jesus opened the scroll, the plan in its entirety was put into effect. We'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it. Okay. There's not a specific verse that said, oh, and by the way, when you read Revelation, you should read it all at one time. But if you understand recapitulation theory and you, uh, the, the idea of recapitulation, you understand that the, the, the pictures, you can, actually take a pic, uh, you can actually draw it out. The seals, the trumpets, and the, the bowls, and you can make parallel lines to this is this more intense. This is this as you bore down into it. This is what this looks like if you wage, work yourself down into it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's an overarching plan. So let me ask you this. Is there only set, set, certain parts of redemption that are available to you now? Is the whole plan of re redemption available to you? Are you saved fully now? Then the whole plan of God's salvation has been opened. Is there an eternal security that you live in right now? If you were called from the foundations of the earth, are you saved for good? Does God persevere or preserve your salvation to the end? Right. He has made perfect those He is sanctifying. You see the already but not yet aspect? The entire plan of salvation has been opened unto you. You're perfected right now, but you're still in process. Now that creates a conundrum to the human mind. But in heaven, when you see the picture of God in His sovereignty in chapter 4, what do you see around the throne? The church in its glorified state already in the presence of God. I know, it's hard to get your mind around, but that should, it, it's not so much that we have to figure that out. What it should bring to us is a sense of great joy and a sense of great security and a sense of great encouragement. That no matter what's going on in the world, He is sovereign over it. No matter what I see going on out there, as long as I keep it within the context of that's God's sovereign plan, those things must happen. They are the beginning of birth pains. What, is God, what does Jesus mean when he says that? These are the beginning of birth planes. We hope and we wait for the joy of what is to be brought forth. Women, when you have children, I don't know this, but you endure the pain of, of what you're experiencing through bringing a child into the world because of the joy of the hope of holding the child. Is that correct? Am I right in that? I mean, that was, that's an awful big assumption on my part. <laughs> I've never experienced that. But is that, isn't that right? Isn't that what you... So we... <laughs> All right. All right, well. So we, as a woman in childbirth, eagerly anticipate, endure the pains of what we see out there because we know it's part of the redemptive plan. Okay? So the whole thing has been opened up. It is executed fully. It's actually playing out before our eyes. Is there war? Yes. Is there famine? Yes. Has there been famine? Yes. Has there been death? 
Yes. Has there been pestilence? Is there a pestilence? Is there going to continue to be pestilence war? Okay, so the entire plan is working itself out within the context of what we call the interadvental period, which is Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and his second coming. That period is what we're seeing. And in that period is the fullness of the book of Revelation being, being played out before our eyes. Okay, it's not chronological, seals, trumpets, bowls, rapture, rapture seals, trumpet, bowls, second coming. It's an overarching scroll opened and all of them being poured out now. Okay? All right. Uh, and I wept because we've already done that. Uh, verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Hoskema seems, uh, sees an interesting picture in this, and I think it's an interesting picture as well. A lot of commentators breathe, uh, uh, blow over this. It was not one of the angels that came to him, nor was it the mighty angel that came to him. Who was it that came to John and said, Don't weep? One of the elders. Who was the elder? What does the elder represent? Yeah, so the church triumphant tells the church militant, Weep no more. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has this taken care of. That's a, an amazing picture of encouragement. That in our state of militant Christi Christianity, as the church fighting every day of our lives, struggling against the forces of evil, when we are weeping because we just don't know what's going on, we look to the church triumphant in the throne room of, of heaven and we say, that is our eternal state. And that's the picture here. John weeps. He's unconsolable. And yet the church triumphant comes to him and says, Hey, John, don't weep. It all works out. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. Alright, does that make sense? Alright. Uh, both the Old Testament titles are used here because they reference prophetic passages wherein the Messiah conquers or overcomes his enemies and judges them. This is the only place in Scripture, by the way, that the word lion of the tribe of Judah is actually applied to Jesus. Bet you didn't know that. It's the only place that that phrase is, is, is used as a moniker of who Jesus is. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not the only place that the tribe of Judah is not mentioned as a lion, but it's the only place in Scripture that it's applied to Christ. All right? Um, the term derives from Genesis 49, 9 through 10, wherein Jacob blesses Judah. Uh, and as an interesting addition, the passage also speaks of the scepter never departing from Judah, which is also a prophetic statement of messianic kingship. And also, there's a statement in this. He will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choices of branch. Uh, uh, choicest of branch. What is that an image of? What is that a prophetic picture of? What did Jesus ride into the city of Jerusalem on? And where did he see them? 
tethered to a vine. Jesus was, huh? It's a prophetic picture of Jesus entering on a donkey as the Lion of Judah. And it comes from Genesis 49. His donkey is tethered. Yeah, that's a very cool picture. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, anybody who was versed in, in Old Testament Scripture, which the Pharisees surely would, would have recognized, this is Genesis 4, 49. The Messiah, the, the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, tethers his donkey to a vine, and he loosed them and rode into, rode into Jerusalem. Those are fascinating pictures, guys, to me. Um... So, this also signifies some, uh, something. I won't get into it a lot, but uh, do you know how the tribes of Israel were set up? It's important to know, to know this. Why was Jesus called the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Do you know how the, the tribes of Israel were set up when they were in the wilderness? They were set up how? In the shape of a cross, right? Three, 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 and three, right? So, you had three smaller tribes here. You had the ark. The covenant here, you had three tribes here, three bigger tribes here, and then you had a large group of tribes here. That's the way it was set up. All right. Under each standard, under each tribe was a standard. What were the four standards? What are the four beings in living creatures in heaven? Oh! That's why I say you can teach the whole Bible from Revelation. What were the four standards that they were under? Ox, lion, eagle, man. What was Judah under? The lion. What was the commission of Israel? At what, first of all, what was Israel called? My son. What was the commission of Israel? To spread out and take, testify to the nations. Jesus assumes that very thing as the son of God, as the lion of the tribe of the standard. He assumes the role of Israel when he says, go ye therefore into all the, all the earth and make disciples. So you tie all these things together. It's phenomenal how this works. It's phenomenal. So this goes back. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Okay? So. Root of David. Although the usage in Isaiah is the root of Jesse, this is clearly a reference to the lineage of Jesus as coming from the royal family of David. Um, verses, uh, the verses that follow in Isaiah, uh, or I'm sorry, the verses that follow in this, uh, in, in chapter 5, are a vivid summary of the Old Testament prophes, a promise of a divinely endowed messianic king who will destroy all evil deliver his people from their afflictions, both spiritual and political, and establish a new world order, uh, a new order in the new earth on which peace, righteousness, and blessedness reign. This uh, same phrase is used comprehensively, uh, more comprehensively later in Revelation 22, where it is said, I am the root and the offspring of Jesse. Now that's a very interesting statement and it harkens back to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in the garden when he said, when Ab before Abraham was, I am. The scripture here says he is both the root and the offspring of David. Jesus is not just the offspring of David, but he is the root. Jesus is uh, 
because he was he is first Jesus is the offspring of David because he is first his root. The picture then is that of Jesus uh, is that though Jesus is of the royal lineage of David, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom from which David's kingdom sprung as a foreshadowing. And although David's kingdom ceased completely in AD 70, from its roots come the consummation of that kingdom. So, Jesus himself is the root from which David's kingdom sprung. And when David's kingdom was annihilated, it is also the offspring from which the eternal kingdom also comes. So he is both the root and the offspring, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. This is why I don't blaze over these passages. There's a lot of stuff in these. So, all right, I'm going to conclude with this. He has triumphed for today. John is here assured that Christ has indeed won. He is the victor and has triumphed, but he is not the victor as the way that the Jewish people thought. He is not. So here's the deal. The angel says to John, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has triumphed and overcome. And John looks up, and this is where the the chapter and verse divisions in, in Scripture really messes this up. But what does John looks up and what does he see? Not what he was told he would see. Not what he hears. What does he see? A slain lamb. Quite a opposite of a mighty conquering lion. Here is a mystery. In some way that is, in truth, beyond our understanding, the death of Christ was a victory over his enemies and subsequently the enemies of God's people. It was by his being a slain lamb that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is lion and lamb. Which brings another picture that in the new creation, what lies down with what? The lion lies down with the lamb. Pretty cool. So by his victory, he is victorious over Satan, principalities and powers, and the power of death and of Hades. Now even death and Hades do the very will of God. Don't be misunderstood. Or don't don't be misinformed. Even death and hell does the bidding of the sovereign Christ. Because the fourth horseman that is released upon the command that comes from the throne is death and Hades. And it is alive and active in the world today for what reason? What reason? To accomplish the purposes of him who released him. Jesus is master over these things. These are not running amok in the world and we're at its discretion and disposal and we're subject to whatever happens in the world. Jesus has released these for the purpose of refining his church and judging his enemies and bringing about the the, the redemptive kingdom, the new creation that he has pledged. And he is worthy, not be not because he is necessarily a lion, although he is, but he is worthy because of what? He is the Paschal Lamb. And by his death, which is a mystery to us, he is now able to open the scrolls. 
and release the plan of redemption. And he there, let me just say this as a, as a closing statement, he is still there eternally as our intercession as a slain lamb. The word there for I saw a lamb as though it was slain is an ongoing event. Not that Jesus is continually being slain, but that his, the, the, the effects of what he has accomplished by his death and resurrection are con- ongoing. It doesn't say he inter- intercedes for us until we all get up there with him. It says he lives to intercede for us, which is an ongoing concept. Jesus withholds his, holds on to his humanity with its scars for eternity. Jesus appears and it is our intercession because he is God and man in one and retains within his body the marks of the work that he has accomplished for us. And by those marks, he is our intercession. This idea that Jesus sits next to God and goes, don't kill him. Please don't kill him. He didn't really mean it. Is not the picture. The picture is that Jesus, because we are in Christ, sits at the right hand of Father and is the intercession, our intercession, because we are in him and he has risen and ascended. Rick. And, and that, that's, that text that's so um, misunderstood, by his stripes we are yield. This is why it has a much broader um, effect than just to think of physical healing. It's talking about healing in a redemptive sense of the entirety of man. Yeah. By those stripes, which you're talking about right now, Dean, through the sacrifice of Christ eternally, there's healing for man. And so when we believe in Christ, we enter into that healing. Yeah. And it's, it's a totality for us. Yeah. In this life, it will not be perfect because we live in a fallen world and a fallen body yet to be redeemed, re- resurrected and, and made new. Yeah. But the, the healing is complete yeah. in its entirety. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let me just take a minute real quick to because Rick just said something that I think is important. At the, in the new creation, there's a river that flows from the throne of God. And what lines that river? The trees that bring their fruit forth in their season continually, right? And what are the trees for? The healing of the nations. That's a perpetuation. And that's a picture of Christ, what Rick just said. By His stripes we are healed. That's an eternal ongoing thing. We are eternally healed because of Christ's stripes. Okay? So, let me just conclude chapter 5 with this. When Jesus takes the scroll, receives the kingdom from the Father, which, by the way, is the picture of uh, Revelation 1.1, where this is the revelation of Jesus given to Him by His Father. Scroll given to Jesus. That's the depiction. So again, we go from 5 back to 1. There was an event that happened in heaven. What was that? There was an eruption of praise. An eruption of celebration. Worthy are you to receive the scroll. I want you to think about what this God who is ineffable has done. Who became man, stepped into creation, took our the judgment of God upon Himself for, for us, opened the scrolls, the seals on the scroll so that we could be redeemed. And when we as Christians think about these things, our hearts should erupt 
as the angels in heaven did when he took the scroll and everyone fell face first on the floor and said, oh, worthy are you, Lamb of God, to open the scrolls. Okay, we're going to stop there. We'll get into the four horsemen next week. Father, we are indeed grateful for what you've done for us through your Son. That Christ is the light and the life of men. And that he has brought that life and light to us. I encourage our hearts this morning, Lord, with the fact that you are victorious, not will be, but are. With the fact that we are eternally seated before the throne of God. And though not yet, but that gives us the strength to overcome, as was said to the churches, the seven churches earlier. To him who overcomes will be granted the right to sit with me forever. We're grateful for your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.